0: Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for Politically Eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta and we are welcoming back Isaac Saul from Tangle today. For those of you who haven't yet, go over to readtangle.com and subscribe. It is the best newsletter out there and it provides perspectives from the left, right and everything in between, as well as Isaac's take on the news of the day. Isaac, welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me, Ravi. Always glad to be here.
0: Well, I think we might have a genuine debate today because I was reading your piece about the disqualifications, the ballot disqualifications for Trump. Before we get into the sort of substance of the matter, where do things stand right now as it relates to states excluding former President Trump from the ballot?
1: Yeah, a little complicated because he has so many kind of legal troubles that are popping up these days. So the Supreme Court has decided not to take up the argument about whether he is immune from criminal prosecution. But it does seem like they're going to hear a case on his disqualification from the ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. That came slightly after, I think just a couple of days after the news broke that Maine's Secretary of State determined that Trump was also not eligible for the ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And I think we now have 18 or 20 states somewhere right in that ballpark who have at least filed some kind of court challenge or some kind of lawsuit where Trump is potentially being removed from the ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So there's a ton of activity there. I think the Supreme Court's Ruling in this case is going to be pretty much determinative of how everything plays out from there forward. I think what they do in Colorado is basically going to determine whether we see Trump actually not on the ballot in any state across the country. Obviously, you know, this applies mostly to the primary. I think that's the only fight that we're witnessing right now. But I think based on what the Supreme Court does, it's going to have an impact on the general election. And then there's the obvious point that Trump could theoretically be removed from a dozen, couple dozen states without it really impacting his ability to win a general election. Like, you know, Colorado could theoretically remove him from the ballot, and he doesn't actually need those electoral votes to win the election because he has a path to win without Colorado. If Pennsylvania or a state like that did, it'd it be a much, much, much bigger deal. Obviously, it's still a huge deal that this is (laughs) even happening. So as far as I know, that is basically where things stand. I you know, wrote in my newsletter, I find it very, very, very unlikely that the Supreme Court is going to uphold the ruling that we saw from the Colorado State Supreme Court. There are some people who think that there might be a couple of liberal justices who side with Colorado. I've not seen many court watchers that I know of predict that the Supreme Court is going to uphold this ruling. If they do, it will obviously fundamentally reshape the election and, and what we see the next few weeks. But as far as I know, that is basically where things are as of today, you know,
0: Tuesday, January 9th. And you, and to put a finer point on it, you think this is a terrible idea?
1: Well, first of all, I think that the Sur- Colorado State Supreme Court was wrong to rule that the way the way they did. Um, I think from a, from a legal position, you know, m- my argument was The court's determining that he committed insurrection and then that he actually falls under the, you know, he he is one of the people who is subject to Section 3. There's been a lot of legal writing about whether president and vice president fall under Section 3 or not. I was particularly convinced by a piece that I read in Slate making the argument that Section 3 actually does not apply to presidents and vice presidents. So that's one kind of tenuous point. The fact that Trump is, you know, fundamentally not being charged with insurrection and wasn't convicted of insurrection by Congress. And, you know, I think insurrection is a kind of squishy political term, though it obviously has some legal definition in the Constitution. I think the fact that this amendment was specifically designed to deal with people, you know, the Civil War, basically, um makes me very skeptical of it and then politically i think yeah it's it's very dangerous i don't think this is the way to to navigate what's happening with trump i think he's facing real legitimate legal jeopardy right now outside of the 14th amendment stuff and i think that should be allowed to play out and i think it's a dangerous thing to try and remove him from the ballot given just like where the country is right now so that's that's more of a political argument than a legal one but yeah, I am not a fan of this uh, in basically
0: any regard. Let's take this one step at a time. And I think I have kind of separate my thinking in the authority that this court has. Uh, and we could focus on Colorado, but it's the same is true of the Secretary of State of Maine procedurally in, in the way I read it. So do they have the authority to make this determination? Does it apply to the president? Did the president commit insurrection? And then the politics and practicality of it all are kind of the four steps that I'm going through this process. And one of the most interesting commentators on this is a guy named Will Bode, who's a professor at the University of Chicago. Uh, I overlapped with him in law school, and he's a conservative originalist, which makes him a really fascinating figure to be talking about this. And he recently appeared at the Federalist Society and... I made some arguments that you wouldn't expect at a federal society meeting. Uh, His first argument is that the provision of section three is self-executing, and this is him describing what that means.
2: The provision is a self-executing qualification for office. No person shall be parallels the language for qualifications for office the Constitution already contains that say no person shall be a senator or representative who doesn't meet various requirements of age, residency, and citizenship that no person shall be eligible to the office of president if they're not a natural-born citizen, and so on. No person shall is the language the Constitution uses to say, these are the rules for holding office. The Constitution itself does not allow you to assume office unless you meet the criteria. Section 3 adds to these qualifications one new and important qualification, namely that you can't have engaged in an insurrection after swearing to support the Constitution. We know that it works this way, for sure, by comparing it with other parts of the Reconstruction Amendments. For instance, the 13th Amendment, which bans, which says slavery and involuntary servitude shall not exist, was an immediately self-executing legal rule. When it was enacted, slaves were immediately entitled to their freedom. Other parts of the 14th Amendment, no state shall uh, deny due process equal protection and so on, immediately gave people new legal rights against the states. Section three works the same way. And we know this for extra sure, because section three after the long clause about no person shall, has a clause that refers to Congress and says, Congress can lift this restriction by a two thirds vote. So the one time that Congress needs to act under this provision is to deactivate the provision, not to activate it. That is, immediately upon uh, insurrection or rebellion, anybody who's covered by this clause cannot hold office. And if Congress wants to change that, they can do so, but they're the ones who have to act.
0: So his argument is that this is self-executing and what he means by this. And he goes through this at length in a piece that we're going to link in the show notes uh, in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review, where he talks about how self-executing provisions work. And essentially what it means is like, for instance, if Arnold Schwarzenegger tried to run for president, Congress doesn't have to do anything. Federal courts don't have to do anything. A state secretary of state or a state court could make a determination really quickly to be like this person was not born in the United States, does not satisfy the constitutional requirements to be president of the United States. And what Will is saying is this provision of the constitution uses the exact same language that tells you whether people are qualified in other ways to hold certain offices. Uh, and so from a jurisdictional perspective, I'm persuaded that the courts can make this determination as absurd as it is, it could be chaotic, it's not exactly practical to have everybody making these terminations, especially in our political environment. But I'm convinced, at least from an authority perspective, legal authority, that the courts have this authority.
1: Yeah, I, I think from a legal authority perspective, that argument makes sense, you know, in the sense that the Colorado State Supreme Court can remove a perspective politician from a ballot if they believe that you know they violated the you know this clause that the, the self-executing clause language makes sense that sounds consistent that's the first time i've heard that argument just now as you played it but hearing it put that way makes total sense to me i think the legal argument that i was persuaded by about whether it applied to former president trump or not is that both well, it's, it's two-part. One is that presidents, believe it or not, there there's a great deal of legal argument about whether they're actually occupying an office of the United States. And then there's also the fact that we know from the history of how the Section 3 was drafted that presidents and vice presidents were removed from this clause initially. And so it's not so much that Colorado couldn't do this if it was determining whether a say a Colorado senator or Colorado governor was going to be on the ballot it's that they can't impact this federal landscape by removing a president which would have an impact on people outside of the state of Colorado so i don't know i wonder at first blush i wonder if those two things can coexist with each other his argument and my perspective but that makes sense to me that it's the the self-executing language that is interesting i've not heard that before
0: yeah and the sort of presidential requirement is something that he spends a lot of time in his law review article. People can go to page 107 of the law review article to to read his perspective on that. And I'll try to summarize it here, which is essentially he looks at the language where it says, or as an officer of the United States. And then he kind of goes through the etymology of that phrase. And I'll just quote one paragraph because he, he goes through page after page or page describing this, but he says, the argument relies on a fine parsing of prepositional phrases. He says, the president holds an, quote, office under the United States, but is not an officer of the United States, question mark. So he's saying, is that really what's going on here? He says, this seems to defy textual common sense, far more sensible and straightforward to conclude, we think, is that the office holder holding the office of president is an officer of the United States who holds office under the authority of the United States. The minor textual difference between the triggering clause, officer of, and the positions disqualified clause, officer under, a choice between prepositions appears to be of no significant substantive consequence in section three, much as other minor textual variations in and among constitutional provisions often do not support differences in, in meaning." Indeed, one far simpler and more straightforward explanation for the Constitution's use of officer under and officer of in section 3 and elsewhere is that office and officer simply take different prepositions the Constitution uses of when referring to an officer and under when referring to an office. If you're asleep listeners, I don't blame you, but you can go read <laughs> that and make your decision for yourself. And so let's hold that, and say like, I'm sure the Supreme Court will make a decision of that. By far the most interesting question, one that you definitely talked about in your newsletter is, did Trump commit insurrection and what is required to determine this? And I find this to be the most interesting question because he has not been convicted under the laws of the United States of insurrection. Now, what Bode would say is, remember, he's saying it's self-executing. Now, again, I'm saying this is what legal authority exists, not what should happen, right? Like I, Probably am persuaded that a trial and conviction, either in the Senate or in our courts, would be the prudent step before removing somebody from a ballot. That's probably where I am today. But what he's saying is, what is the authority of these places? And what he's saying is, if it's self-executing, the federal courts aren't required. You don't need an act of Congress. You don't need a federal judicial ruling, is what he is saying. Uh, But he also says that he thinks Trump committed insurrection. Let's go to this clip. And he uses the historical definition of insurrection, not the congressional statutory definition of it, because he thinks it's self-executing.
2: In A a very long article written with my co-author, Michael Stokes Paulson. We detail uh, contemporary dictionaries, speeches by President Lincoln, statutes enacted by the Civil War Congress, uh, case law from the Supreme Court such as the Prize Cases, historical precedents leading up to the enactment of the 14th Amendment, especially the the use of the Insurrection Act against a series of insurrections throughout American history ranging from the, the Whiskey Insurrection to the Slave Rebellions. And we conclude that an insurrection is best defined as concerted forcible resistance to the authority of government to execute the laws in at least some significant respect. So group resistance by force to the authority of government to execute the laws. A rebellion goes further than that. A rebellion is of course an effort to overturn or displace the lawful government through unlawful means. An insurrection is not necessarily an attempt to take over the government. So the Whiskey Insurrection, what we now call the Whiskey Rebellion, but what they called actually the Whiskey Insurrection, was a paradigm case of insurrection where a a group of farmers who didn't want to pay a federal tax tried to forcibly resist the government's authority to collect the tax. They weren't trying to take over the government. They weren't even trying to take over Pennsylvania. They just didn't want to pay the tax and they thought the government didn't have the authority to tax them. That was one of the classic examples of an insurrection invoked when Section Three was written. That's the kind of thing Section Three applies to today. Now, the question of of the hour. Were the events of January 6th an insurrection? Were they a concerted, forcible resistance to the authority of government to execute the laws in at least some to different respect? I think the answer is yes. There was force, there was a concerted group that entered the Capitol by force in part to resist the authority of Congress to count the electoral votes in the way that Congress thought that they should count them. It, in fact, parallels quite closely some of the earlier insurrections in our history like the Whiskey insurrection and others, Fry's Rebellion and more. Uh, I think it's hard to see January 6th as anything other than an insurrection. The harder question is, who engaged in that insurrection? And in particular, uh, did former President Donald Trump engage in the January 6th insurrection that was covered by the Constitution? I think the best answer is he did. I mean, it's not for me ultimately to adjudicate this. This, again, is a question that should come up in the Michigan Court of Claims and in the uh, Secretary of State's offices around the country, perhaps later in the halls of Congress, but I think the best understanding of the events of the day so far is that Donald Trump did engage in the insurrection of January 6th by doing two things. One, by calling the crowd together and inciting them to march on Congress. There's a famous speech he gave at the Ellipse. The speech is somewhat ambiguous. There are times in the speech he tells them that they should go peacefully, which might be uh, telling them to you know, go but, but not to engage in insurrection. There are parts of the speech that seem to cut the other way. By itself, maybe that would be a little bit ambiguous, whether that's uh, direct engagement in the insurrection that followed. When you combine that with the president's actions after the insurrection had begun, uh, his failure to take steps to ensure that the laws were faithfully executed for a long period of time, his failure to call out the National Guard and other authorities, his failure basically to exercise his constitutional office, I think that casts his speech at the ellipse in a different light and also is itself a, a a form of engaging in the insurrection. So if you take the before and the after together and you look at the insurrection as a whole, I think the best answer is that Donald Trump engaged in that insurrection. And I think that's what the constitution tells us, that he cannot hold the office of president in the future.
0: Very fascinating that he decided to make this argument in front of the federal society. I'd really interested to see how that went down. Now, do I think the Supreme Court, Isaac, is going to see it the way Will sees it? I don't think so, especially since like the Supreme Court like, even beside outside of the politics that, you know, there's a significant conservative majority on the court. I don't think the Supreme Court likes to limit its own power. And if you believe Will's argument, you basically believe that every secretary of state uh, and state court has authority to make a determination as to whether Donald Trump committed insurrection or not. And I don't think the Supreme Court is going to want to give up their power to make that determination.
1: Yeah, definitely not. I mean, look, so I have a, Couple of responses to that. I think the, the framing for that argument there. I mean, first of all, just like it should be said from the outset, I, I this again, these this is the first time I'm hearing William's argument. I do know who William Baud is, and he is, you know, a renowned American legal scholar. So suffice it to say, uh, I have enough humility to concede that he, he probably has a better grasp of these issues than I do by a few orders of magnitude. That being said, I think to like, in in order for him to construct that argument that he just made, he's doing two things. One, he's creating his own definition for insurrection. So he's saying that he's reviewing the historical record of all the various ways insurrection and rebellion have been defined, and he's coming up with a specific definition that he thinks is fair in light of that. So I think a lot of people would probably contest, you know, the specifics of how he defines it, and I also point out that, like, you know, as we just talked about on the section three, you know, a preposition in section three can change the entire argument about whether it applies to a president or not. So the fact that he's creating his own argument for or creating his own definition to apply the law in the beginning, I think, sort of puts him on footing that is a lot easier for him to win the argument. And then the second point I would just make is you know, I think he's right that Trump's speech was ambiguous and I don't know how, you know, where I would land on whether that speech constitutes insurrection. The second part that he says that Trump didn't do anything, you know, after the the riots began and after people started entering the Capitol, that's kind of more difficult. I mean, he says that almost more confidently that that's the more obvious point given that the speech was ambiguous. But I actually have almost more trouble with that, is that the lack of action on his part makes him guilty of an act like insurrection. So doing nothing is sort of the action that he's saying that he was guilty of, and that that is proof that he participated in the insurrection. I mean, on the one hand, I think it makes logical sense. Like he's assigned to keep the peace and the law and order and assure that this peaceful transfer of power happens. And what do we know about his dereliction of duty in that regard? That's going to be something that certainly, I think, comes out in some of these trials. And, you know, we have some details about that already just from various reporting and, you know, the the impeachment trial. And basically what we understand is that Trump was sort of relishing the anger from his supporters and enjoying the insane TV spectacle. But ultimately you know trotted out this kind of go home in peace you guys are heroes type talking point that everybody's, I and myself included agreed came way too late and was not really sufficient i the combination of all of that i still think just doesn't feel like solid enough for me to say this is something that uh, a court like the one in colorado can determine he's both guilty of insurrection also that he falls under the umbrella of section 3 And that they should respond to this by removing him from the ballot. I think there's just like too much squishiness in all of that. But I can certainly track the, I guess, the, you know, from point A to point B, taking out the question of whether Section 3 applies to him or whether the courts have the authority to do this. I I think there's obviously an argument that he participated in insurrection. I would really prefer that, you know, Congress had dealt with this, um, that the Senate had actually convicted him on something for his actions that day. I think that would have simplified things a lot. They didn't do that. So now we're stuck here. And I don't mean to absolve Trump of anything. You know, I mean, we're here because of what he did or, you know, what he didn't do. But it still feels a little squishy to me in a way that I'm not totally sure I'm, I'm buying it, despite how well William kind of articulates that argument.
0: Yeah, I think what his particular brand of originalism requires people to come up with these definitions in the case of the Constitution. Because what they're saying is, what does the term mean? Because we don't, the statute is irrelevant, right? What Congress says the Constitution means doesn't mean anything to Wilbode. What he's saying is, when they use a word in the Constitution, we have to decide what that word means. And I think that's what he's trying to do. I think that the, the question of whether Trump engaged in insurrection is really tough, no matter whether you use his definition or not. I think there were certain things he didn't mention that are just on my mind, like the call to Raabsenberger, the new evidence around Michigan. Although the Michigan evidence just came out after, I think he gave this talk at the um, at the Federalist Society, and you put that all together in context, and I think like it's tough. Like, was the decision not to act fast or act at all in itself insurrection? Probably not if you combine it with some of the instigation and some of the other things he was doing, then it gets closer and closer and closer. The fascinating thing is his argument is you don't have to agree that it's an interaction. You just need to vest that power in somebody. I think the practical considerations of vesting that authority in so many different people and the way our politics work in terms of the recrimination that already is happening, you know, places where like Texas saying that they're going to remove Biden from the ballot, et cetera, makes this impractical. The problem is, practicality is not legally relevant, uh, especially if you're somebody like Will Bode. Like if you're if you're Thomas, ostensibly, although I'm, I have no confidence that he's going to see it this way. If you are an originalist, you don't care about the practicality. You just say what the Constitution is, right? Uh, I'm not an originalist, so I happen to think that practicality should come into play when we're reading the Constitution.
1: Yeah, no, it's. Uh... The originalist argument for it, I think, is the only argument, which is why it's sort of rare almost that we've been hearing it because a lot of originalists tend to be, you know, conservative, politically oriented. Do you know what the response was like to this presentation at the Federal Society or from other sort of originalist? Lawyers? Yeah, it,
0: it's a debate. I'll, we'll send it to you afterwards. See, he debated, I forget the guy's name that he debated. It's a pretty spirited debate. The, the problem is, Will Bode, and this was true in law school, is the smartest person I know, period, like when it comes to this kind of stuff. So he just wiped the floor with this guy he was debating, and he could wipe the floor on either side of this argument. So that's not saying his argument is necessarily strong. He's just a powerhouse. You know, He certainly was the smartest person I overlapped with in law school. And what makes him fascinating is, the time and place came together perfectly for him on this argument you know he had been writing a 130 page uh, university of pennsylvania law review and it is the most comprehensive piece i could find in any major law review on this question so he just is he is stacked when it comes to arguments for this and every little case and swerve of counter argument to him. He devotes 10, 20 pages to it in this, in this law review. So it's fascinating. In the end, the Supreme Court is going to remove the power of the states. I'm, I, I share your feeling about that. Now, the bigger question the Supreme Court is going to have to answer though is, and this is not a hypothetical, what happens the next time this is clear? You know, Are they saying that state officials can't remove a true insurrectionist from the ballot? Uh, And then, you know, what happens if the courts and Congress are stacked with people, and this is a good transition, like Elise Stefanik, uh, who this week called the January 6th rioters slash insurrectionists, depending on how you see it, hostages. Uh, And if Congress is filled with people like that, and the courts are filled with people like Clarence Thomas, who are a little too close to this, if you ask me, then what happens? We just lose our country, you know? Like there has to be some kind of mechanism to protect against a true insurrection or rebellion. That's that's my feeling.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's right. I think like part of the, <laughs> part of what's difficult about where we are at right now as a country is that there's so much tribalism in Congress, even in the Senate now, which for a long time has been kind of the reliably, thoughtful, and pragmatic part of Congress that someone like Donald Trump, you know, I I personally, and I've written about this in in Tangle, I was quite skeptical of the first impeachment inquiry into Trump. And I was also quite skeptical of a lot of the Trump-Russia narrative stuff that got shoved down everybody's throats the first couple of years he was in office and wrote pretty critically about the way Democrats handle a lot of that. I actually think, Impeaching Trump for, for January six swiftly before he left office would have been the right thing to do and, and convicting him would have been the right thing to do. And the reason it would have been the right thing to do is because w- when Donald Trump left office, you know, in, in January of 2021, there was a sense that his political career was completely over because the wounds of everything and the way all of that had ended were, were so fresh and it was so obvious to so many people, including a lot of his supporters and a lot of conservatives, that he had crossed some sort of line that was like, you know, we can't come back from this, that it almost didn't seem necessary. It was like, okay, this is the end of Trump's career, political career, obviously, like look what would just happen the last two months. And then everything went through the partisan machine and like the... Conservative media meat grinder, and everybody got on their sides and picked up their weapons and got in their tribal positions. And now we're, you know, three years later heading into an election where he's winning in some polls and has a very legitimate shot to be reelected, which, you know, I think what he did was worthy of impeachment. And by the law, that means that he would be disqualified from being in office again. So, Um, you know, I think if the Senate had handled its business and, you know, 10 Republicans had actually stepped up and done what was right, then that would have resolved a lot of this. And when we don't have that, then we get stuck in the position we're in now where, you know, we're relying on parsing prepositions in section three to figure out whether (laughs) Donald Trump should be allowed to be president or not.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I I also thought, I I thought the Ukraine impeachment was pretty airtight too I think like pressuring your foreign allies to investigate your domestic political enemies and leveraging aid to do it to me is unconscionable and I thought that was enough as well but I agree with you like the the result of inaction in Congress is that people are left trying to litigate this on their own which you know seems you know you and I do this for a living but like, you know, even like the secretaries of state, like these these are political actors, you know? It's why I, I was critical myself of the New York civil investigation into Trump as well as the Bragg criminal investigation into Trump because in those cases, I felt like those were pro- politically motivated. Some of the cases that came after them, I felt were necessary because of Trump's conduct, but I felt like the New York ones were too political for my blood. And then, you know, we're left with these arguments like, well, what if Texas does the same? And it's like, it's, it's crazy because there's no basis to remove Biden from the ballot. There's no there's no 140-page law review that's going to be published about Biden being disqualified from a ballot. So it's just made up of whole cloth, but you know, people have to take it seriously just because of the politics, right? Which is crazy. I do want to get your opinion, though, on this. You know, we just passed January 6th. Uh, Biden gave a speech, and then there also, I alluded to Elise Stefanik and just like, wholesale ownership that trump has over the republican party and members of congress now and the fact that january 6th is no longer viewed in so many quarters as the travesty that you and i think it was it's a travesty for different reasons like they think that this was a some kind of you know to use at least stefanik's language a you know they were, we were taking the insurrectionist hostage or not you know I, I, don't, I can't even reconstruct our argument maybe you can but like Where do we stand now on the narrative January 6th?
1: Yeah, uh, it's, I mean, to me, kind of alarming because I don't think it's a particularly complicated story. I think the kind of rough outline of January 6th was that Donald Trump had just spent two months telling his most diehard supporters that the election was stolen from him. He was oscillating between various election fraud theories, whether it was You know, the original, the Dominion voting systems, these machines flipping votes and being passed through Venezuela or whatever to 10,000 mules or whatever it was called, 2,000 mules, the, you know, ballot stuffing stuff that was happening. I mean, they've kind of changed it. Now it's that big tech suppressed the Hunter Biden story and that cost them the election. They've sort of just thrown a bunch of stuff against the wall about how it was stolen from him and how he lost And he shows up in Washington, D.C., and he gives this speech that, as, you know, William Boe just said, it was a bit ambiguous, a sort of mix between, let's go fight like hell and march down to Congress and make sure you stay peaceful. And, you know, his supporters listened to him. And um, some of them went down there and cheered and held signs and chanted and whatever. And some of them went down there and fought with police and pushed their way past barricades and brought nooses and talked about wanting to hang Mike Pence and kill Nancy Pelosi and yada, yada, yada. So it's hard to talk about this in broad brush terms. Close to a thousand people have been arrested and charged. The vast majority of them have pled guilty to various crimes. Only about a hundred of them, I think, are, are facing you know really serious felony charges for, for violence, i.e. attacking law enforcement officers, Capitol Police. So that gives you an idea of kind of like the scale. I don't think this was like 10,000 people, all, you know, arms fighting police officers. I think it was a few hundred people who were really truly violent and being extremely destructive. And Trump bears responsibility for that. I think he could have stopped it. Um, I think he could have given a speech that had a different tenor and tone that wouldn't have provoked what we witnessed on that day. And then working in the background of all of this were the actual kind of, in my opinion, like the real scary extremist groups, which are like, you know, the, the kind of Proud Boys, Boogaloo Boy, whatever, you know, the guys who are like heavily armed and in their Discord chats and ex-military dudes who were like really legitimately delusional about their capability to maybe prevent the electoral count from happening and felt like when they watched Trump on TV, He was communicating directly to them. You know, it'd be one thing if Trump actually was communicating directly to them. I don't think we have any evidence of that, but they in court have basically argued in their defense that they thought they were acting on his orders when they were like organizing for some kind of truly violent rebellion to stop Biden from being in office. And we know that because there were things like FBI informants in these extremist radical groups, And we know that because a lot of these guys got arrested and were deposed and there's investigations and there's chats and there's court filings and there's a paper trail and all this stuff. And unfortunately, little things from those court filings and from these FBI informants and things like that have now been cherry picked, put through the sort of far right media ecosystem and have come out on the other end with like theories that the FBI basically helped organize or effectively caused January 6th either through instigating it or through Antifa plans or the whole thing was a setup and they wanted them to go there and be violent so they could do all this stuff, which, you know, obvious, I mean, maybe not, it's not obvious, but I think is complete nonsense. Um, There's very little evidence for it. Even the most like enticing stuff about people like Ray Epps, who very mysteriously was briefly on the FBI's most wanted list and then removed. And he was at January 6th and you saw him near the Capitol, but he never faced real charges and all this stuff. You kind of dig into it. And then you realize that a lot of it's just total nonsense. And, you know, not a lot of people have time to do that sort of digging. And so a lot of this stuff spreads like wildfire on social media. And now today, about a quarter of Americans have some kind of rough belief or suspicion that the FBI was involved in organizing January 6th. And a big chunk of Republicans feel that way. And a lot of people don't think that Donald Trump really bears any responsibility for the actions of people that day, which I think some of that is like, you know, delusional Trump support that he can't do anything wrong. I think some of that is also, you know, people who just operate under the belief that the only person responsible for actions are the people who take those actions themselves, which is sort of a separate kind of worldview and philosophy. And so, you know, from their perspective, Trump's not responsible for anything because these people all made their own decisions to act the way they acted, which is fine. I disagree, but that's a fair position to
0: have. Yeah, what I would say to those people, though, is, well, then let's talk about the things Trump did directly, <laughs> whether it's the call to Rapsenburger or, or the audio we now have in Michigan, or every other thing related to the way he's treated documents to all other crimes that seem to have there's plenty of other crimes where it seems like there's a lot of evidence that he did it directly and too often those people in my life when then faced with the actual actions of Trump will use either whataboutism question like very spurious double standards or conspiracizing to find creative ways to try to paint a picture of evidence planting or, you know, I don't even know. It's hard to even reconstruct the arguments. So I'm like, okay, great. Like if you think that people are responsible for their actions and, and Trump can't be like, you know, held liable for all the different instigation he did, well, let's talk about what he actually has done and hold him accountable to that because there's plenty of that.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I my personal opinion is that by far the most sort of offensive, egregious stuff was not the you know his tweets during the January 6 riots or the speech he gave in Washington DC it's the stuff you're talking about it's the phone call to Raffensperger it's you know slandering election workers in Atlanta and claiming that they were you know transporting ballots illegally and effectively ruining people's lives it was the call that we just learned about recently to the Michigan election workers where he's exerting legitimate pressure on other republican politicians or election workers way down the food chain, you know, you're sitting in your little county office and you get a phone call from the president of the United States and trying to find ways to get them to basically put a roadblock up on the normal process of certifying what we know now were, you know, all legitimate legal votes, not I mean, not all, I'm sure there was some fraud out there but He he lost the election. We've seen these challenges play out in court. We've seen all the recounts, et cetera. And, um, you know, that stuff is more offensive to me, both because it requires a lot more premeditation than him just giving his little impromptu speech and saying stuff off the cuff or tweeting. And also because it had a, a much greater chance of being really, really destructive and dangerous. And that if, you know, any of those people folded to his pressure, we could have been facing a real true constitutional crisis and far more violence in the streets and, you know, disruption than what we actually saw. So, you know, January 6th to me is the lead in Trump's story. I think, you know, despite all the good and bad policies that he implemented, even despite COVID-19, which is like the story of the century. And his handling of that, I think, will will always be a key part of his legacy. I think his refusal to accept the election and the non-peaceful transfer of power are the things that have to be in the first paragraph or two of his biography. And and that's how it'll be forever. And, uh, you know, anybody trying to downplay that outcome is just willfully keeping their head in the sand about... You know, where he led us as as a president, as a leader.
0: Let's quickly talk about Israel. Predictably, the attention on Israel and Gaza has kind of simmered down. I mean, obviously, there's still a lot of attention there, but it's nowhere near what it was the last time you and I spoke. As we speak this week, there have been definitely major protests in places like New York where people have been trying to shut down traffic. But my general feeling is people have kind of moved on to whatever the next cause of the day is in my life, a lot of them, uh, too far too many of them, I would say. Uh, maybe that's a good thing for people who weren't well informed on it. Uh, but I know that our audience is very passionate about this issue, you know, and there are people who come from it from very different perspectives. Give us a sense of where we are on two fronts. One is, let's start with the the sense of what is what can we tell the future is going to look like. Israel has now started to get a little bit specific on post-war Gaza plans, which I think I just want to be clear. That language is tricky because I'm not sure there is a post-war period. I think if this is like any period of Israel-Palestinian relations, the war will continue whether we call it a war or not. But let's just call it post-war. Gaza plans. What do we know about their plans now?
1: Well, we know that they don't agree inside the Israeli government. I mean, I think that's the biggest takeaway that we've gotten from the last week of news. Um, One of the things that happened last week that was not not extremely rare, but very rare, uh, especially in time of war in Israel. Was that the divisions inside the Israeli government and the you know the cabinet basically spilled into the public? Um, there was this meeting of the security cabinet on Thursday. Uh, there are these kind of far right members of the Israeli government and the security cabinet who have said a lot of really gross stuff about basically forcing the remaining Palestinians out of Gaza and their desire to just settle Gaza with Israelis going forward. And um, they have been sort of exerting their public pressure and making these kind of comments, I think sort of pushing the Overton window as far to the right as possible in Israel. And essentially what happened was is after this meeting, the defense minister, Yoav Gallant came out and said, you know, that they had a plan for post-war Gaza and that plan would not involve any Israeli civilian presence in the Gaza strip and basically said there would be no reestablishment of Israeli settlements in Gaza and sort of nodded to this idea that there would be no Israeli soldiers there either i mean he said they wanted to keep some kind of you know security operational freedom but it did not sound like somebody who was planning to keep Israeli soldiers in the Gaza Strip, and then also floated this kind of multinational task force that would help rehabilitate the Gaza Strip that was gonna be led by the United States. And when he came out and said this, it caused this kind of huge skirmish in the press. Basically, you know, some people coming out and saying that wasn't the plan, some people coming out and saying it was, the different various wings of the Israeli government fighting with each other publicly, and so I think we got an idea of one very powerful, important person's vision for the future, and Glant's vision is is very relevant. It's far more relevant than some of the stuff that makes headlines from the really far-right members of the Israeli government, because he's in a, a really strong position of power to influence the outcome here. But it made it clear, too, that there is a great deal of division. And so, you know, from my perspective, I think it was encouraging in the sense that, that is the kind of <laughs> vision of the future that I'm hoping for. One where there's a concerted international effort to rebuild and you know help the Palestinian people in Gaza. One where there is not a reoccupation, which would take us back 20 years in the peace process. One where Israeli soldiers aren't occupying and settlements aren't being expanded. All that stuff is good, 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 check mark, check mark, check mark for me. But the response to it and the fighting over it, I think, is emblematic of the mood in Israel right now. And I think it is a sort of not very encouraging forewarning about what might be coming in terms of how the government's going to fight over what to do next. So that's my read on the current situation. Again, this sort of public spat was pretty unusual and I think is, you know, also representative of just where things are and how divided even the Israeli government is about what the path forward is going to be.
0: Yeah, there was also movement on the sort of internal conversation within Israel around the rule of law and the judicial reform. So correct me if I'm wrong. So the Supreme Court ruled against the Netanyahu government's sort of Ju- I we call them judicial reforms, but essentially like this series of sort of power grab moves that Netanyahu had done and to, among other things, legitimize I- illegal settlements. And the, from what I understand, the Supreme Court ruled that that was unconstitutional. And there's a whole separate argument about the role of the Israeli Supreme Court in ruling about measures to take away their own power. So it's tricky. And we we'd we only stomach one tedious Supreme Court argument in, in each episode, but there, there's that whole separate question. Uh, but then there seemed to be some reporting, and maybe you know more about this than I do, where members of the right-wing coalition essentially signaled that they're not going to fight it, that this is not their priority right now, which if true would be a very positive development.
1: Yeah, no, that is the signal based on my understanding is that The judicial reforms and the attempt at pushing them through were incredibly divisive. And maybe in the view of some in Israel were partially responsible for the fact that Israel's security was lacking on October 7th and contributed to this kind of opening for a group like Hamas to attack them the way that they did. And you know, there's some evidence for that. There were you know hundreds of thousands of people in the street every week. There were Israeli soldiers saying that they were going to strike and and not report to duty because they were upset about the potential reforms and all this stuff. It was the the huge folks of the government. So there's all of that, and then there's also you know to even add another wrinkle, there's the reported acceleration of Netanyahu's corruption trial, which is another thing that's been in the news in Israel. That it sounds like they're going to push that forward a bit quicker than maybe people anticipated or get back to moving forward on that trial. So, my yeah, my sense is that this fight for now is basically over. I think Netanyahu was kind of the the leader on not kind of he was the leader on the judicial reform push and I think the war and his lack of a political future has sort of cut the head off the snake on that. And without him in a position of strength, the fight for those judicial reforms is something that's just going to take a backseat. The ruling was divided. It was, I think there was a one vote difference. So maybe it comes back up again in the future. Maybe there's another fight to be had, but it's hard to imagine anybody expending political energy on that right now when the number one priority in the country is this you know the whole security issue the future of gaza and the west bank and every politician in israel who's listening to their constituents is going to be thinking about what their positions are on those issues and how they're signaling about them and i don't think anybody wants to step on the sort of the judicial reform rake now that this ruling has come down it's sort of like an opportunity to just you know take the exit ramp i think
0: yeah, and for listeners, we will do a more exhaustive review of where we are, both tactically and morally in this fight, what the casualties are, um, civilian deaths, casualties. There's been a whole lot going on on the ground. Most of it is pretty frustrating, I would say. And I think it kind of is in line with our original questions around what is going on here and what the goal is. But uh, we'll do future episodes on that, but Isaac, thanks for being with us today. Everybody go out there and subscribe to readtangle.com. Uh, and for those of you who are listening, if you haven't yet, go wherever you get your podcasts and, and rate, review, and subscribe, give us that five-star rating. And those written reviews really help because those pop right up to the top and people look at those when they decide whether to subscribe to our podcast or not. And our voicemail, 321-200-0570. That's 321-200-0570. Thank you, everybody.